Wonderful. Do take your seats, please. Christ is enough for me. Great words, aren't they? I think if there's one thing I've brought back with me from my trip just this last week, it's, it's that sense of incredible humility when you see people of faith who are living that out on a day-to-day basis. Um, I said I wouldn't mention too many countries that uh, were represented there, partly for their own security, but just to let you know, um, there are opportunities to be involved. Um, there's a pastor from, one of the pastors from northern Iraq said to me, uh, you're always welcome, come and see us. And uh, in the pictures, he's, they show that they're 15 kilometers from ISIS. So it's fine, it's 15 kilometers away. Anybody up for that? Okay, come on. Why not? I've got a friend who's just come back from seeing that same guy, actually. He was there a few weeks ago. And uh, just amazing what God is doing around the world. We did... Um, there's a church in Algeria that were represented there. We got a, I got an opportunity to pray with the, the leaders of the church and to spend some time with them. And God is just doing something outstanding. They've got a church of 1,200 people in Algeria. Just, their baptism service just recently, they baptized 87 people. People coming to Christ from Islam. Isn't that exciting? And uh, the message we were hearing wasn't one of fear in the face of terror. It was one of thankfulness. Because the church was saying, consistently saying, we're, God is in control and we're thanking God that he is working out things as he is at the moment. Because ISIS is causing people, or Daesh, whatever you want to call it, is causing people to see Islam as it really is. And people in their thousands are turning to Christ as a result of this. People in their thousands are coming to Christ saying, we don't want anything to do with this. If that's what Islam really is like, we, we want to find an alternative. And so people who have got a moderate background are beginning to question and debate and think. And they're saying, God is causing this to turn many, many thousands of people to himself. So that's exciting, isn't it? Exciting what God is. So when you, when you see the stories on the news, try and see behind those if you can. Try and get an alternative news source if you can as well. And just, just pray, because God is always at work, and he's building his church. Uh, today I want to read from a story which... Uh, when we get to it's John chapter 7, verse 53, and if you've got your Bible open, you might have a note in there that says uh, the oldest Greek manuscripts don't include this passage. Um, some of your, your, your Bibles might have this in italics or rele- relegated to a footnote. Most just have a comment there somewhere. And this is the story of a woman who's brought before Jesus. And uh, just a quick note on the, the textual comment you might have in your Bible, just so you don't panic about that. Most modern Bibles are, are, have tools built into them to help us get back to the original text. And so that what they're doing, the translators are sifting through um, and helping us sift through, because we, most of us don't read Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew to, to go back to what we think of the original text. And so they're helping us sift through and, and weigh different manuscripts up against each other. And there are just a very few occasions in the New Testament particularly where out of the thousands of manuscripts we have, there's a difference of opinion about which bits go where. Very, very few. And this is, is one example of that. And most scholars would argue that this is a his, an historical account. Uh, it's a record that happened, which is why I'm going to speak from it today. Um, but that it probably doesn't sit right here in John's Gospel. So that's why some of the, 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 the Bibles will have that little reference there. 
Uh, some attach it to the end of Luke's gospel. Um, it's referenced from as early as 350, uh, sorry, 300 AD. So that's the earliest references we have to this passage. And people have inserted it into John's gospel at 300 AD. But the manuscripts that go back older than that don't have it just in this place, which is why that's there. Uh, so there we go. But I want to treat it in the context we find it in our Bibles today. As I say, from 300 onwards, it's been treated here. So I just want to look at it in that setting and context today. Before we get into this, I want to pray. Father, I pray as we come to your word today and as we look at it, that we would see something of your incredible grace for us. That we would be captivated by your love for us, transformed by your Holy Spirit, inspired by faith in you to live for you boldly and courageously. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive into this passage that we have before us today. John's Gospel, chapter 7, starting at verse 53. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life. Of sin. We find this passage here in John's Gospel in a place where Jesus has just made some quite staggering claims. He's just claimed to represent God. He's just claimed that if people are thirsty, they should come to him and drink. He's just claimed all sorts of things which are quite dramatic and which link to God's In the Old Testament, God's promises about himself. Isaiah 55, come to me, all you who are thirsty. And Jesus has just said something very similar in the chapter before we get to this particular passage. And people have gone home. Jesus is doing his teaching in public, in open, in the temple courts. And this passage finds us uh, arriving at the scene to watch what's going on as Jesus, early in the morning, arrives back there again at dawn. So This is probably six in the morning, something like that. Before people are going off to work, Jesus is there in the temple courts beginning to teach. And people have come to gather to receive teaching before they go off and do the task of the rest of the day. It says that Jesus wasn't, it doesn't say he was standing behind a lectern preaching at the front of a church on a stage. It said he was sitting on the floor. He, he went to the temple courts and, I don't know if you noticed that, uh, but it says there, the people gathered around him and he sat down. I don't know if he sat on the floor. Oh, you get older, it gets harder to get up, doesn't it? I don't know if he sat on the floor. See, I'm still raised and most of you can't see me now, but people would have been gathered around him. Whether he sat on a 
a small stool, I don't know, but Jesus was sat down to do his teaching. This is the traditional posture of a rabbi teaching. This isn't unusual. This, the, people would, the teacher would sit down and others would stand around. These days we invert it, don't we? Well, at school you have the teacher standing and everyone else sits down. Uh, maybe behavior would be better if the teacher sat down and everyone else stood. I don't know. But anyway, that's what happened. And so the teacher is sitting down and everyone else is standing, watching and listening. And, and as Jesus is sitting teaching, some men bring in a woman that has been caught in adultery. It doesn't say that they caught her, but they're bringing in this woman. Must have been at least two people who caught her to be valid witnesses, but... Anyway, she was caught in the act of adultery. We don't know how, we don't know the backstory, we don't know what she's wearing or what kind of state of distress she's in when she comes into this place. But as Jesus is there going about his teaching, there's a woman brought in front of him who probably was in a bit of a mess. It's often women who, get a, women who bear the brunt of these kind of accusations in all sorts of cultures. And in this culture, it's no different. In Middle Eastern culture, family honor was determined by, um, often attached to the sexual behavior of its women. And women who violated the code could be killed by families. And in recent years, we've heard stories on the news of the same sort of thing happening, haven't we? In different cultures around the world, as people are accused of adultery or besmirching the family name, trying to marry somebody that they weren't, uh, the parents didn't want them to be married to, and they're stoned to death. There was a case in Pakistan not too long ago, outside a courtroom, outside the, the place where you should receive justice, where a young woman was stoned to death for uh, trying to marry somebody that her parents didn't want her to marry. That's what's going on in our own world today. And so the teachers and rulers, or teachers and Pharisees, bring this woman to Jesus. And they say, what are you going to do? The law says we should stone such people. Well, the law actually says, the Old Testament law actually said that you should stone both people, man and woman involved, not just one party. That's a big problem to start with. Because they've only got the woman there. But I want to just point your attention to the location. Again, it's difficult. I'm sat on a fullback speaker here. It's quite uncomfortable. Um, but Jesus would have been sat on the floor in the temple courts. And Herod had constructed the temp- a, a Roman fort close to the temple in such a way that the Roman soldiers would have patrolled up and down one, three of the four sides of the temple courts. This large temple area, about 35 acres in size, this whole kind of big area of the temple courts. And they would have patrolled along colonnades. And so while Jesus is there teaching, and, and he's got a crowd around him, and into that crowd have come the Pharisees, and into the, and the, and the scribes and... and kind of religious leaders, they've thrown a woman. But I want you to bear in mind that there's a crowd of people listening to Jesus. There's then the religious leaders and the woman and soldiers patrolling up and down, up and down the colonnades. As they say to him, what will you do with this woman? Because our law says we should stone her. And, and what they're trying to do is set up two horns of a dilemma for Jesus to be thrust on. If he says, yes, stone her, he's in direct contravention to Roman rule and Roman law. Roman law says that only the prefect or the the ruler of of that part of the world, the Roman leader, has the authority to impose a death sentence. So if Jesus says stone her, he's up against the Romans. If he doesn't say stone her, he's up against the law. 
and the religious leaders. So what should he do? Of course, we know that Jesus bends down and he begins to write in the dust. And there's, there's so many theories about what he wrote. Most of you have heard this sermon preached will have heard a different theory about what he wrote, and we don't know. It's interesting that it's the day after a major feast, and the day after a major feast is always a Sabbath day. It's the eighth day, the, the special Sabbath that's attached to the feast, and writing in any kind of permanent form is, is considered illegal, illegal under the Sabbath regulations, but you can write in the dust. That's okay. Jesus is writing in the dust. He's not breaking any rules, but he's just writing. All sorts of theories. Maybe he's writing a commandment. Maybe he's writing whatever. I don't know what he wrote. Nobody else does either, but he's writing in the dust. Interesting also that Roman judges, when they were passing sentence, would write out the sentence. They wouldn't just declare it orally. They'd write out the sentence. So maybe, just maybe, he's writing something in connection to that. And of course, Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And in the story, it's the oldest ones who leave first. It's the oldest who realize that they're not going to be throwing a stone that day. And they leave, followed by the youngest ones. Jesus ultimately addresses the woman and says, Has anybody, is anybody left that condemns you? She says, no, nobody. And he says, no, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I'm going to get off this speaker, partly because it's really painful, and partly because I want to make a few points from this. I want you to think about this woman and what's going on in this story. And how, I want us to see today God's uncompromising grace. You might think this is just lavish grace, but actually it's incredibly uncompromising grace that we're seeing here today. Firstly, because of this, God chooses always to see us before he sees our sin. He makes a decision to look at you before he looks at your sin. And me too. The Pharisees, the religious teachers in this story, weren't at all interested in the woman. You can tell that by the way they refer to her. They, they say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. To them, she's just a pawn in a game. She's somebody that they can drag in and go, there you go, there's one of them. What will you do with one of them? And Jesus doesn't treat her as one of them, as somebody lumped in with others. He doesn't look at the sin. He doesn't go, but he's the only person in this whole story who addresses her personally. Nobody else in this account actually speaks to this woman other than Jesus. He waits till the end, and then he speaks to her personally. We talk about loving the sinner and hating the sin, but in reality, I think we find this very difficult to do. If I was to mention to you famous people that you knew a bit about, that we we know a bit about, we'd have an opinion on them, but only from what we've heard about them, not from actually knowing them. If I was to say to you a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, Lance Armstrong, you would say, wow, what a man. What an amazing man. He, he won the Tour de France. He had cancer. And then he came back and he kept on winning races. Wow, what a great guy. Phenomenal. Now you know the other side of the story, the drugs and everything else that was involved in getting him there. This is a cyclist, by the way. Tour de France, cycling. You heard the story? Okay, that's all right. 
Sometimes you wonder, you know. But anyway, you've heard the story. That's good. Uh, now we look at it from the context of, of looking back through that filter of knowing what's happened since. And now we go, oh, drugs cheap. Yeah, just drugs cheap. We don't quite go as far as, oh, I could have done that. Give me the same drugs and I'll win the Tour de France as well. It doesn't quite work that same way. But we're looking now with the lens where we're seeing the sinner rather, sorry, seeing the sin, not the sinner. We're seeing what he's done. I don't know the first thing about the man. If I'd read his biography, I I would know a little bit more, but still wouldn't know that much about him. But the truth is we often view the acts that people have done. And seeing the sin before the person is a massive hindrance. I think there are many people who see their own sin and stop before coming to God. Many of us have, many people I've, I've spoken to have, have not wanted to come to God because they've been so aware of their own sin. One person uh, said to me when I was sharing to them about Jesus, they said, well, when, when I've got these things sorted out, then, then I'll make the decision to follow Jesus in my life. Then that's the moment when, when I'll start believing in Jesus. And, and I was trying to say to them, and thankfully by God's grace did say to them and did share with them, actually that's the wrong way around. You come as you are. And God sees you as you are. And this person discovered that it was exactly in their mess and with things not worked out that God was already interested in them and could set them free. God doesn't want us to try and clean everything up before we come to him. He's interested in us because he sees us rather than our sin. Last week I was obviously in Egypt and one of the most challenging parts of the trip was a prayer meeting. We were praying for all sorts of things. And I said to you that the the people I met were the happiest, funniest, most gracious people I've seen in a, in a long time from a very difficult kind of context. And at one point in this prayer meeting, we stopped and we were praying for different things. And the leader of the prayer meeting asked us to pray for the IS terrorists. Not to pray against them, but to pray for them. And we spent time breaking up in groups, praying for these people who had mums and dads and who were loved by God. And I, think, I don't think I've ever prayed for them before. I don't think I've ever prayed with compassion for these people who are lost and without Jesus are not going to spend eternity with him. I don't think I've ever sat and prayed for those individuals behind the masks. All I've seen is the mask. I don't know about you. As you watch the news, you might pray for people persecuted by them and people whose family, families are those who've had their heads chopped off and all the rest of it. You might pray for those guys, but I've never prayed for the terrorists. And they stopped us to pray for these people. And I thought, wow, here's a group of people who are committed to seeing past the sin, and it really challenged me. So an action point from this, stop seeing others and yourself by the sin that has been committed. You are not defined by your mistakes. I'm not defined by my mistakes. If we're following Jesus, those things have gone. If we're not following Jesus, God looks to you, not your sin. You can trust him. Secondly, Jesus In this story, and God always refuses to be swayed by public opinion. I am so pleased about this. In the face of a crowd baying out for blood, Jesus doesn't take a referendum. He doesn't pause and say, let's vote on what we should do with this woman. He doesn't check on on what people say on your Facebook page to decide how he treats you. He doesn't look at how many Twitter followers you've got or what people are saying about you. He doesn't ask what anybody else thinks because he doesn't need to. Public opinion is fickle and subject to whims and fancies. 
But God isn't swayed by that. Simple action point from this. If God isn't swayed by public opinion, we shouldn't be either. I think if I could change one thing about my life, there are many things that God's working on, but one I would love to change, and I meet many people for whom I'd love to change this too, would be that we would give less credence to what other people think about us. And in reality, I should give less credence about what we think other people think about us. Because then I think that would introduce a whole level of freedom as we just started living for God. Anybody else with me in that one? You want to worry less about what other people think about you? I think that would just bring so much freedom, wouldn't it? Jesus isn't swayed by public opinion. Thirdly, God has uncompromising grace because he chooses not to write us off. This woman has been caught committing the act of adultery. This is serious business. But Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say it's all okay, but he doesn't judge her at this point. Why? Well, earlier in John's Gospel, we read read these words, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. didn't send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world. Great, isn't it? There will be a day when Jesus judges all things. There will be a a day when that woman stands before Jesus again. But today today was not that day. If we're back in the story, today was not the day when Jesus was going to judge her sin. At that moment, Jesus was pointing the way to forgiveness and hope and life for her to discover. So that when she did see Jesus again face to face... He would say, my daughter, come. Come into your inheritance. Come home. Welcome. I paid the price for you. So what if you've blown it? What if you've made a a terrible mistake? What if you've done things that you wish you could undo? If you are still breathing, there is still time. While there's breath in your body, there is still hope because God hasn't written you off yet. In the story of the lost son, the son spends his dad's money, goes off, blows everything. We see the father waiting and watching for his son to come back. There's still hope, even at the end. In the story of the lost sheep, the farmer's got 100 sheep, and he loses one. He leaves the 99 to go and find the one. He doesn't get halfway to finding it and go, oh, pack it in, I can't be bothered. He keeps on going until he finds it. There's still hope for redemption. So the action point from this is that if God doesn't write us off, we shouldn't either. And we shouldn't write other people off too. Fourthly, Jesus refuses to, and God refuses to, pretend, gloss over, or make excuses for our sin. Most of us will have been through schooling where homework is required. Now, you'll have sat in a class listening to all all sorts of excuses, and maybe you've come up with some in your your day for why your homework's not been done. The dog ate it. I left it on the bus. uh, All sorts of reasons why. Actually, most of the time, you just couldn't be bothered. And you're kind of playing around with excuses. There are some great excuses around. Um, Some some reasonably well-known examples. There was a, a sinking of a boat called the Costa Concordia, um, terrible disaster where this big ship went down um, and an Italian captain, don't you remember, they were, he brought the boat too close to the shore 
And uh, there was this big disaster. I think they're still trying to get the wreck sorted out. Anyway, does anybody know why? Well, he was challenged. I'll set the scene first. He was challenged for abandoning the boat. The captain's meant to be the last one down on the boat, still going down as the boat begins to sink. He wasn't. He was on a lifeboat. Does anybody know why the reason was he gave that he was on a lifeboat and, and got off the ship early? To save his life? Well, that's what everybody thinks, yeah. Anybody know? Okay, this is um, Captain Chetino. His reason for abandoning the Costa Concordia was, I tripped and fell into a lifeboat. <laughs> what do you reckon? I think he's having a laugh, isn't he? Politely. Uh, Jack Straw was in trouble a few years ago for shaking the hand of the dictator Robert Mugabe at the UN meeting in 2004. His excuse was it was quite dark. Quite like that one. My favourite one, I think. John Prescott, formerly Deputy Prime Minister. These are a few years old, which is why they're these guys. Um, in 1999, a chauffeured car was used to transport John and his wife 300 metres from their hotel to the venue of the party conference where he was to give a speech encouraging people to use public transport. 300 metres. His excuse was, my, lo- my wife doesn't like to have her hair blown about. I've discovered in my life and in others that it's very easy to excuse bad behavior. What we tend to do is, is, is judge other people's and excuse our own. Uh, some people have it the other way around, and they excuse other people's and judge their own. But either way, we tend to excuse somebody's. We, we make it rational. We make it okay. We make it not our fault. Or, or if somebody else is at stake, if this woman was, was there in this situation and the, the, the religious teachers have thrown this woman at Jesus' feet, we might be tempted to rush in and go, it's not fair. You don't understand Jesus. You need to just weigh these things up. She, she's on her own. She should have the bloke there as well. It's not fair. It wasn't her fault. You didn't see the circumstances. You didn't see the loneliness of her relationship. You didn't see, actually, she was forced into this relationship and she doesn't want to be there. It's not fair. Jesus, you need to look and see what's going on in this woman's life. You don't see the backstory. You don't see everything that's going on. You don't see what she's been going through. Do you know what? None of that would have made any difference. Jesus doesn't excuse or condone or gloss over her behavior. At the end of this story, this woman is still an adulterer. And I think within us there's a concern that grace somehow, God's grace somehow isn't big enough to cope with our sin. So what we try and do is minimize our sin before God just in case God can't quite cope with it. And I want to say to you today, God can cope with anything. It doesn't matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter in terms of stain and all the rest of it on you. You've got muck on you and all sorts of things. It doesn't matter whether there's there's dirt on your shirt or on your life. It doesn't matter because God can cope with anything. He's big enough. The Bible says he, he washes us whiter than snow. We don't need to pretend our sin was different to what it was. We don't need to pretend that it's smaller than it was or more manageable than it was or that God needs to see it from a different perspective. God never, ever excuses sin. Why? Because he doesn't need to. Because his grace is big enough. His grace is strong enough to cope. 
His grace is abundant enough and wide enough and broad enough and powerful enough to wash away your sin and to cope regardless of what's happened. God paints your sin as badly as it is and says, it's okay. I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that. It's okay. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to mitigate with excuses. I understand. It's okay. So my action point from this is just to ask ourselves, what behaviors have we, have I, been defending, excusing, explaining, covering up, minimizing, trying to say to God, God, you need to understand this as well. Folks, I think it's time to stop. I think it's time to stop excusing, covering up, pretending. Do you know why? Because God's grace is big enough. He, he can, he's big enough. It's time to stop saying, oh, but it's my background, it's the way I was. Just, just come to God and say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. I want a new start. And God will. Because he's powerful enough and big enough and loves us enough. God refuses to leave us unchanged. At the end of this little story, after all this debate's been going on and discussion, Jesus stands up. It's the first time in this story he's stood up. And he says to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Some people find grace really scary. Some people, when we talk about grace, feel that it's a bit worrying. Because we're talking about God forgiving us, and surely we should pay for those things. And we're talking about God's free gift of grace, and all of those things are true. God gives grace freely to us. It costs him everything, but he gives us freely. And, and there's a temptation, I've spoken about this before, to set out limits and frameworks and say, well, God will give grace to these people but not to those. And God will give grace to some and not to others. And there are some people who are beyond the pale. But I want to say to you today that that's untrue, that God is able to deal with anything. He is so gracious and so loving. There's no need to try and bring back in law to make it feel safe again. Because God is wanting to just overwhelm us with his grace. And that's the point. But equally, God isn't wanting us to take that grace for granted. It, Paul deals with the situation. He, he writes, when he's writing later in the New Testament, about sinning. And he says, should I sin more so that grace can abound? If, if when I sin, grace is big and there's lots of it, shouldn't I sin more then to, so that grace can get bigger? No, of course not, he says. God loves us so much and his grace is so powerful that he doesn't want us to stay the same. He doesn't want us to remain stuck in our sin, sin, just going to him, going, God, I've done it again. And him going, okay, turn around, come to me, and I'll make it okay. I've paid the price. And then we toddle off back to our sin again. And then we come back to God and we say, God, I've done it again. He doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be free. And to this woman, he actually says to her, go And leave your life of sin. Wonderfully releasing words. God's grace sets her free. God's grace is not an invitation to sin and keep coming back to God again and again. 
It's an invitation to live a life free from the slavery of sin. Notice Jesus didn't say to her, off you go and don't do it again. Like a naughty schoolgirl. He didn't say, off you go and don't do it again. He said, go and leave your life of sin. This was a continued life away from God. And he says, it's time to stop all that. It's time to step into a new life. A new life with me. A new life of hope. A new life of freedom. So the action point from this is, if you haven't already, take the next step into freedom. Away from your sin. Don't try and stay unchanged, just stepping out to receive grace and step back into sin again. It's time to step out into the freedom that God wants to bring. God chooses to consistently offer grace. The same grace Jesus offers to this woman, he's offering to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and those around him. He doesn't condemn them either. He's offering the same grace to all. Finally, Jesus insists on grace. He could have pulled out the law and debated the law at this point with those around him, but he doesn't. He insists on grace. And I just want to say today, there is no other way other than God's grace. There is no other way. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. He's saying here, there is no other way to get to God except coming through me, except through grace. You can't earn your way to God. We had a word earlier about God's love for us. You can't earn your way for God to love you. You can't be good enough for God to love you. You can't pretend and cover up and fake it. God knows what we're really like. Jesus is the only way. And I'm not saying that other religions and other faiths don't have some very nice people following them. It's not my job to disparage. But I just want to present to you the words of Jesus and say, he said he's the only way. There is no other way to God other than through Christ. That's an absolute claim. He's not making half a claim. He's saying, that's it. I'm it. There's no other way. And that's because grace is so important. God insists on it. Do you know why I know that's true? Because if there could have been another way, God would have found it. Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If it's possible, take this cup from me. The cup of his suffering. He's just about to face the cross. If there was another way, Jesus would have found it. If there was another way, if, it, if following another path would have got us to salvation, would have got us to the Father, God would have opened it up for us. If meditation or reading a different religious book would have done it, if religious practices would have done it, God would have opened that up for us. But there was no other way for sin to be taken away. There was no other way to come into freedom other than through the grace which God offers The only times Jesus gets angry in the Gospels are when grace is under threat. When people are refusing others to come to God. Those are the points at which Jesus gets angry. Several times it happens. 
Paul, in the New Testament, gets into an argument with his friends, his fellow preachers, to defend grace. When others are saying they need to be circumcised, they need to follow the law, Paul actually gets into a bit of a scrap and says, no way, grace is the way. Let me finish by saying this. Grace always extends to people that we would exclude. I've met people in this last week or so that uh, if I knew them before they came to Christ, I probably wouldn't have extended grace to them. Grace extends to people that we would exclude. In the Gospels, it includes, it extends to little children who were too young. It It extends to lepers who were too unclean. It extends to tax collectors who were too sinful. It extends to those who were broken and bruised and rich and poor. God's grace extends to all. Simple question, I suppose, at the end. Am I living in the light of God's grace? If actually God insists on grace, that he's always going to deal graciously with me, if actually he chooses to consistently offer grace to me, if he refuses to leave me unchanged, if he refuses to pretend, gloss over, or make excuses, if he chooses not to write me off, if he chooses to be swayed by public opinion, if he chooses to see me before he sees my sin, am I living in the light of that? Am I joyful despite my circumstances? Am I gracious Am I thankful? Does God's grace fill my life? I pray that it would more and more fill yours and mine. Why? Because we've got a God who's uncompromising in his grace. He loves us. He's for us, not against us. He's not reminding you of your sin. He's dealt with it on the cross. He's inviting us to come and to know him more, to leave a life of sin and discover hope and to go on discovering that day after day. Shall we pray together? Would you stand with me? Ross and the team, would you come on stage, please?